0: It's the year 1918. World War I is raging in Europe, seemingly without an end in sight. Women are still rallying for their right to vote. Woodrow Wilson is in his second term as president, and as if a world war wasn't enough of a crisis, he now has a global pandemic on his hands, the 1918 influenza. We in the present know that the war will end in November, and suffrage is just one year away, for white women at least. We also know, however, that the influenza will take more lives than military deaths in World Wars I and II combined. You're listening to Historically Speaking, the local history podcast from the Boone County Public Library. In this podcast, we share stories from the county's history, particularly the history you won't read about in the textbooks. You'll realize that truth is often stranger than fiction. On today's episode, I look at Boone County's response to one of the worst health crises in recorded history, the so-called Spanish flu. Now that we're in a global pandemic of our own, I thought taking a glimpse into the last century's public health crisis would be an interesting comparison to our own unprecedented times, a nice opportunity to do some local history research, you know, to get our minds off of things. suffering from a fever cough and runny nose do you have pains in your ears eyes back and other parts of your body those are some of the symptoms of the spanish flu and like our friend the coronavirus many of the symptoms line up with other ailments like the common cold many people who were infected and got sick with the spanish flu stopped having symptoms after three or four days and they often recovered afterward the flu turned deadly though When it led to other respiratory diseases like pneumonia or meningitis. The great influenza, aka the Spanish flu, is believed to have killed 20 to 50 million people worldwide. The outbreak is believed to have originated in Europe, and reportedly the King of Spain, Alfonso XIII, contracted the disease. This is how the epidemic got its name, the Spanish flu, even though, even in 1918, people knew this was a misnomer. The king of Spain might have never had the flu, and even if he did, he recovered, so good for him. The flu was called La Grippe, G-R-I-P-P-E. In the newspapers, it was referred to by a few different names, like pneumonia, which the flu could lead to, or to generally feeling unwell or ill. If you look at newspapers from this time, the neighborhood and society columns are filled with news of who felt under the weather and who was caring for whom. One of the reasons the 1918 influenza was so widespread and so detrimental was because of World War I. Think about it. All those crowded military camps, abroad and at home, along with the crowded conditions on military ships, it would be really difficult to maintain the six feet of social distance recommended for a current pandemic under those circumstances. Also in war, people move around a lot. We're not talking about crossing state lines, but crossing national borders. That led to the spread of all kinds of diseases, but that's a story for another podcast. The point is, the crowded military camps and frequent movement of war made it very difficult to contain the spread. In fact, the first case of the 1918 influenza in the United States, at least so we believe, was in Camp Funston in Fort Riley, Kansas. In Kentucky, young men who volunteered or were drafted into the military gathered at Camp Zachary Taylor in Louisville. And some colleges, like the University of Kentucky, had their own military barracks for the Student Army Training Corps, or SATC, to train soldiers. However, in trying to support the war effort, these conditions put the young soldiers at risk. Newspapers from these areas show that soldiers were dying of the flu before they were even sent overseas. According to the Philson Historical Society, 824 soldiers died of the flu at Camp Taylor alone. Researching the 1918 flu proves unexpectedly difficult, because news coverage about the epidemic had to compete with news about the war. The domestic public health crisis was often on the back burner, while updates from the war front and messages about liberty bonds and blood drives filled the headlines. News of the flu was likely suppressed as well. In order to avoid a public panic during wartime, the nation had other things to worry about. The 1918 flu clearly devastated the United States and Kentucky, but what about Boone County? I talked so much about the military influence on the spread of the disease because it plays a large role in two of the stories I found about the flu. I should preface this segment with the fact that I find a lot of sad stories in local history, plenty of happy and uplifting ones exist, but for some reason I'm always drawn to the depressing stories. The first one I'm about to tell is an example of that but don't worry, I have a happy story too to balance it all out. We start with Charles E. Farrell, who was born on May 19, 1895. He appears first on the 1900 census in Verona, where he is listed as Charles MacDonald, living in the same household as Edward Patrick Farrell and his wife, Catherine Long Farrell. His relation to the head of household is orphan but on the next census, in 1910, he's listed as the Farrells' adopted son. Charles was drafted when he was 22 years old. According to his draft card, he was a farmer on his father's farm in Verona. And, like most military records, we also get some other details that we don't normally get from other records, like information about his physical appearance. So, we learn that Charles had light blue eyes and sandy hair, and that he was of a medium build and height. On May 28, 1918, Charles E. Farrell was ordered to report at Camp Zachary Taylor, where he was in Private Battery A in the 18th Battalion Field Artillery. However, he was only there for about five months before he died of pneumonia after the Spanish flu in Camp Taylor on October 10, 1918. He was 23 years old. His obituary in the Boone County Recorder on October 24, 1918, says that Charles was, quote, very popular and greatly admired in Boone County, and that he had, quote, a self-sacrificing disposition, which I'm sure was appreciated at Camp Taylor. It also goes on to say that Charles had been married for a few months, and that, quote, the young widow and his parents are bowed down with grief. The marriage must have been very recent, since he was listed as single on his draft card. On Charles's death certificate, it doesn't list his mother or father. The section for his mother's name was crossed out, and wife was written at the top of it, but here's how they give his wife's name, Mrs. Charles E. Farrell of Walton, Kentucky. Thanks for that, guys. Really informative. But, if we look back at the newspaper, we can see there is a wedding announcement for the marriage of Charles E. Farrell and Mary Agnes Ryan in January. Charles and Agnes were married on January 26, 1918 at St. Patrick's Church. Charles was selected by the local draft board a few months later. Charles E. Farrell was buried in St. Patrick's Cemetery in Verona following his death. His parents, Patrick Edward and Kate Farrell, died in 1937 and 1944, respectively, and they have been buried in St. Mary's Cemetery in Fort Mitchell. The couple had no other children. His wife, Agnes Farrell, never remarried. She eventually went back to using Ryan as her last name. She died in nineteen seventy four and is buried in Saint Patrick's Cemetery. So that's the sad story, but as promised, here's an uplifting one. The story of Benjamin H. Riley. Born on may 22, eighteen eighty nine, Benjamin H. Riley was a notable attorney in Boone County. He was also the clerk of the local draft board until he himself was drafted and stationed in Camp Meade, Maryland. His son, Ben Riley II, was Later told the Dixie News in nineteen ninety two quote the most action they saw was the flu, end quote. and he was absolutely right though Riley never went overseas, he did have the pandemic to reckon with. Riley got the flu at Camp Meade, but he recovered and returned to Boone County on furlough after the war when he returned. Riley got right to work, becoming one of the founders of Boone Post number no. Four in nineteen nineteen the fourth chapter of the American Legion in Kentucky. Riley served as Boone Post No. 4's first post commander. In this role, he worked tirelessly to promote the Legion and support veterans of the Great War in the county. Riley died at the age of 46 on March 4, 1936, after a stroke. On the day of his funeral, county offices closed at noon and flags were flown at half-mast. He is buried in Hopeful Lutheran Cemetery. Talking about the war and all that he had survived, including the 1918 flu, Riley wrote, we have stood together, let us stick together. And I think those words apply now as then. In the newspapers, you can see the progression of the pandemic. In the October 3rd issue of the Boone County Recorder in 1918, not much was written about the sickness, but by the next week, a few cases of the flu were reported, in Gunpowder, Florence, and Union, along with several closures due to the spread of the flu. On October 21st, Bellevue had several cases, including the entire family of Dr. Richmond. Burlington, however, claimed not to have had a single case in 1918, In December, they reported that there were no cases within city limits, and that the nearest case was a mile and a half away. This was a small victory, or really a coincidence, and it didn't offer any comfort to the people of Burlington. In another column, they wrote that, although there was no flu, quote, all are expecting it every day, which finally happened in February 1919. In the end, no place was untouched by the flu. Like today, many places were shut down to avoid spreading the illness. Races at the Latonia tracks were postponed, and all public assemblies, including funerals, were canceled. Schools were also shut down on October 8, 1918. Remember, this was before school integration, so the newspaper specifies that both African American and white schools were to close their doors. This was understandably very controversial because the school year was already much shorter than what we're accustomed to today, and attendance in 1918 was pretty sporadic, even without an epidemic. Many people were concerned that, once it was clear for the schools to reopen, many of the kids would be needed to help with their family's farm and would not be able to attend the school. Fortunately, schools opened their doors again in January of 1919. The superintendent at the time, J.C. Gordon, called closing the schools, quote, a great mistake. But from a modern standpoint, I think we can agree it was better to be safe than sorry. However, many schools closed again after being reopened, after teachers or students got sick. So I've talked a lot about the impact of the 1918 flu, but what about the medical aspect of it? Were our historic counterparts also social distancing and humming happy birthday while washing their hands? What did they know about the spread of the disease? one column from October 24th, 1918 is called Uncle Sam's Advice on the Flu, and it gives some information on the epidemic. The column says that the flu is spread through droplets, like respiratory droplets with the coronavirus outbreak. The column suggests a variety of ways to prevent spreading the flu, many of which we know and are currently doing today, isolating the sick, avoiding crowds, and covering the mouth when coughing or sneezing. They even had a little rhyme for it. Cover each cough and sneeze. If you don't, you'll spread the disease. They also suggested getting fresh air and maintaining a good diet, specifically through drinking milk, which I don't think has any effect on the immune system. Today though, we're encouraged to get enough vitamin C. You can read other precautions from this time on local history's website, Chronicles of Boone County. Did you notice something was missing in that list? Yeah. Washing your hands. So clearly, there are some major differences between how these different pandemics were handled. In total, the 1918 flu pandemic lasted for 15 months. Ironically, many deaths have since been attributed to aspirin poisoning, since aspirin was prescribed in heavy doses to help treat the flu. The flu clearly had a tremendous impact on Boone County, but it is far from the only epidemic in its history. One of the earliest was the 1792 smallpox epidemic, and there were numerous cholera outbreaks in the 1800s. The Northern Kentucky Tribune published a great article about the epidemics in our region's history, so be sure to look at that for more information. The one thing that all these pandemics have in common I'd like to point out is that they ended. There was also a more recent pandemic in the 1980s, the HIV-AIDS crisis, which is still fresh in the memory of many people today. This pandemic hasn't ended yet, but much better treatment options have become available. If there's enough interest, I can look at the history of this pandemic in the northern Kentucky area for a future podcast episode. Just write in and let me know. That's all for this episode, but more local history stories will be coming your way. Thanks to the Smithsonian Magazine website, smithsonianmag.com, with their article from November 2017 by John M. Barry, That article is called How the Horrific 1918 Flu Spread Across America. And again, that's by John M. Barry. Thanks also to the Filson Historical Society, who wrote a blog on January 17th, 2012, entitled Kentucky and the Great War. Thanks also to the Northern Kentucky Tribune for their article on March 30th of this year, entitled Our Rich History. Epidemics in the 19th Century Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, We Have Persevered. That's the entire title of the article, Our Rich History to We Have Persevered. Other information for this podcast came from the Boone County Recorder, available on the Boone County Public Library Catalog, and also on archive.org. Another member of the local history team wrote about the 1918 flu on our website, Chronicles of Boone County, and that article is called Precautionary Rules in the Spanish Influenza. I'll put links to all those websites on Local History's website, Chronicles of Boone County. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and make history this week. Or, should I say, preserve history this week. We're in a historic moment. Document it, if you can. Take pictures, keep a journal, save newspaper clips. Your local history librarians thank you. There's also an initiative going on with the Boone County Public Library where our social media team is collecting stories. You can share yours anonymously or you can attach it to your name in the comments. We hope that you'll participate. Again, thank you for listening.